Please be seated. Take out your Bibles, please. Open them up. Book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 10. We complete today, Lord willing, chapter 10, as we've mentioned as we've been going through, it's kind of an instruction manual on discipleship as the Lord Jesus has been giving his 12, his close disciples, these instructions as he is sending them out on a very important mission. We talked at the end of chapter 9, Jesus made this statement that was true then, true today, that the harvest is plentiful, saying that the world is full of people who need to hear the gospel message, who need to hear the truth, because without it, they will spend eternity separated from the love of God, facing the wrath of God in hell forever. The harvest is plentiful, but he said this, and it's the same is true today as it was then. The workers are few. There are not enough workers willing to go out into the harvest field with the message. So he said, diligently seek God. Go to him in prayer. Pray that the Father would raise up workers to go out into the working, into the field to work. He said, and as we have said in that, be prepared, be ready, because when you do that, if you truly go to before the Lord with that, you will be called into active service. <laughs> God is going to move on you to get involved in the work in the fields. And then he goes on in chapter 10 outlining what is to be expected, what we can look forward to in this, the difficulties, the trials, how we are to be prepared for this ministry. So we pick this up now as we, again, complete chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. Jesus says this. Therefore, again, tying this all together now with what he has been saying to this point, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever confesses me. Confess. That word simply on its simplest level means to admit. That's what, how we kind of look at it at most of the time. But a much deeper looking at the meaning of that word, it literally means to agree with someone else, to say the same thing as someone else. When we confess our sin, we are saying the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. That's what it means to confess our sin. That means we agree with you, God, that what you say is sin is sin. Not our opinion, not the world's opinion, not the constantly a changing opinion of, of people. No, God, what do you say sin is? And I agree with that. I say the same thing as you, God, about the penalty for sin. I say the same thing as you, God, as to how that we can be rescued from this condition we are in, in our sin. That is what it means to confess, not just to admit, but to say the same thing as, to identify completely and totally with the one who is saying something. Jesus said that this confession must be done publicly. It must be done before men. This is not just something that takes place in the inner recesses of our, our being. This needs to be professed. It needs to be stated out loud. 
needs to be stated with our lips, but also with our lives. Just to state something with our lips, with no life backing it up, no walk following it, is, is, is a lie. That's, it's living a lie. Paul said as much when he wrote to, Tim, or for, to Titus, I mean, Titus chapter 1, verse 16, says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. It's not enough just to say it with our lips. We need to say it with our very lives. Our actions need to walk it out. Now this word confess, this verb here that is used, it is in what's called the aortist tense in the Greek. And not to make it sound like I know, you know, because I'm such a great Greek student. I'm not. I read this this week. So the aortist tense means that it is a continual action. It's not a one-time thing. It describes a life of a disciple. It is an ongoing thing that we confess it with our mouth and we confess it with our lives. Paul wrote to to the church in Rome in Romans chapter 10, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Paul is clear, when we believe and truly believe, it's not a head issue, it's a heart issue. And if it is truly confessed and lived out in in our hearts, righteousness will follow. Our life will be marked by righteousness. That that we we don't just confess it again with our lips, it is with our lives. And Jesus said, to confess me to confess me. We need that, what does that mean then? We need to say the same thing Jesus says. We need to to come alongside and identify with him. Yes, with our lips. We need to say the same things that Jesus says. We need to profess the message that Jesus professed. There are a whole lot of people that have opinions about heaven and hell. Probably heard, heard, heard many different things about you know, how to get there, what they're like, many people even denying the existence of hell or how long you stay there or all, you know, all of these other types of things. Whole lot of opinions. There's even been people who have had near-death experiences that come back and say, let me tell you what heaven's like. I was there. Let me tell you what hell's like. I was there. Near-death experiences. I gotta be honest with you, I'm not interested in what people who had a near-death experience have to say. I'm interested in what someone who had a real death experience has to say. He died. He was there three days in the tomb. He rose again. I wanna hear what he has to say. I wanna identify with that one. And he has a lot to say about heaven and hell. He has a lot to say about hell. Hell is a very real place. He said that it is like a furnace of fire. He said that the thirst that is felt there is unquenchable. He said that it is full of those weeping and gnashing their teeth in anguish and in pain. He said, it is like outer darkness, so dark you can feel it. He said, it is eternal torment. 
He said, the worm does not die. He said, it never, ever ends. That's what he said. We also know, though, that hell was not created for man. Hell was created for Satan and the demonic forces that, that, that follow Satan. Not for man. We know that it's not God's heart that any man go there. The Bible tells us that he doesn't want anyone there. He desires all men to be saved. He desires that none should perish and that all should come to repentance. That's God's heart. He doesn't want anyone there, and he doesn't send anyone there. Man ends up in hell because they choose to go. There is a choice that is given to everyone. Heaven or hell, it is placed before. Jesus said in Matthew 7, as we studied it a few weeks back, enter through the narrow gate, he said, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. But notice he says, enter through the narrow gate. He's giving this option to everyone. The gate is there. The way is there. And unfortunately, the world all around says, oh, there's plenty of ways you can get there. There's all sorts of different things. But if we confess Jesus, there is only one way, and he said he is it. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. When we confess Jesus, we must confess that truth, that he is the only way. He doesn't desire anyone to go, and he doesn't send anyone to hell. As a matter of fact, people have to step over the gift to get to hell. They choose that. Now, he's also got a lot to say about heaven. He talks about heaven, and, and, and we see in the book of Revelation, as we studied that a while back, John, as he was given a, a vision of heaven, he was given a glimpse into heaven, and then he tries to describe it again in words that we could possibly understand, and it's this glorious place, far beyond what we could ever imagine. The streets so pure gold, you could see through them. I mean, it's just this beautiful place, but the most beautiful, extraordinary thing about heaven is we're with Jesus forever. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And I'm coming back. I'm coming back to get you. And then I'm going to take you there. We'll be together with him forever. We need to confess Jesus and confess what he said. The world's got to know this. But we need to do it more than just with our lips. Again, when we confess Jesus... We need to say the same things Jesus says with our very lives. How do we do that? We, we model our lives after him. We study him. We study his word. We follow him. We reflect his light in this dark world. This last week, this tragedy that happened in South Carolina, I'll tell you one thing that came out of that, this in action. Living Jesus if you, I don't know if any of you saw this or read about this, but there were many victims' families that looked at that killer in the eye and said, I forgive you. That's living Jesus. That is confessing Jesus to the world. 
just as he, this, 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 this murderer, he didn't ask for forgiveness, yet forgiveness was granted. Just as Jesus, as he is being nailed to the cross, says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Guys, that's confessing Jesus with your life. And he says, look at, the, look at, look at this promise that we have here. Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. So if confessing is saying the same thing as, when we say, I belong to Jesus, Jesus stands before the Father and says, Dad, they belong to me. Those are mine. He confesses us before the Father. John 6, 37 says, Jesus speaking, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out anyone who comes. Again, invitation open to every individual. Come to me. He confesses us. One of the verses that, that every, time, every time I read it, it, has, it makes me pause. But Hebrews 11:6 6 says, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called our God. Marinate in that thought for a second. God is not ashamed to be called our God. He confesses us before the Father. Any of you remember back in the late 70s, early 80s, when the New Orleans Saints were really, really bad. And their football team, their fans, they'd come to the games and they wore brown paper bags over their heads. Remember that? And they had the ain'ts written on it, you know, and they were like, oh, I'm so embarrassed to be a Saints fan, right? But I bought the season ticket, so I gotta be here. You know, and they just, they just came, they're just so embarrassed. Sometimes, I gotta be honest, I feel like that's what God has to be doing when he's watching me. Sitting there in the stands going, uh, that's my boy. But he's not. He's not ashamed to be called our God. Jesus confessing us. I see it. That this, Jesus up there. Dad, look at him. Look at him. Proud. Not, not perfect. But, but we're making progress. Even, even when we fail. It tells us in, it, John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, it says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's our desire, all of us. We, we, we want to live in sinless perfection and, the, and writing this to us so that we wouldn't, but he says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. He's not up there pointing out our mistakes to the Father. He's our advocate. He's our Lord, he's our Savior, he's our Redeemer, but he's our advocate, interceding on our behalf. He lives to make intercession for us. I gotta say, in light of that, confessing him sure doesn't sound like that big a deal. <laughs> I, confessing him should be, just, it, it blows me away that he would confess me. 
He died for me. How can I not confess him? But many do. Many do deny. He says, and they, those who deny me before men, I will also deny him before my father. Deny, that means to renounce, to reject, or to refuse something that is offered. To refuse the gift that is given. God saw our sinful condition. He saw that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we have all turned our back on God, that we want nothing to do with God. And in that condition, there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. So he stepped out of heaven, became one of us, lived a perfect life, and then died a sacrificial, substitutionary death on our behalf, taking the full wrath of God for our sin upon himself. The night that he was betrayed, when he was in the garden, and he prayed, Father, if there's any way that this cup could pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He was speaking of the cup of the wrath of God that is due each one of us for our sin. And he knew that in order to save us, he needed to drink it all. And so he did. On the cross, the father turned away his love for his son and poured out the full wrath due us on him on the cross so that we could spend eternity together with him. But you have, to, you have to receive it. You have to take that gift. And unfortunately, many reject it. Many refuse it. Not just with their lips, but with their lives. Remember the Titus verse we looked at earlier. Many, many profess it with their lips, but live a life in total disobedience. Again, now this word denies, just like the word confess, is in the aortis tense. It speaks of a lifestyle. It speaks of a life, not individual denial. Praise the Lord. Because I know I'm probably not the only one who did something this week that would deny Jesus in the way that I lived. Peter denied him out loud three times. Many things in our lives we do, but that's, it's speaking of a lifestyle. Those sins are forgiven and covered as we confess Jesus with our, with our lives. But this is speaking of just a denial. And he says, I will deny that person before my father. There's eternal ramifications for that decision. Jesus continues in verse 34 he said, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Now, if you take these, <laughs> these three verses and just take them as a chunk and take them out of context and take them completely out and you just read those three, you're like, wait a second. That does, I don't understand that at all. Isn't he the prince of peace? Yes. Well, it says that he, he, I didn't come to bring peace. Understand it again in the context with which we're looking. There is coming a day where the prince of peace will rule and reign on this earth and there will be peace. So much so that it tells us that, that all of the weapons of war, swords and all its spears and all of that stuff are gonna be made into gardening implements. 
because nobody's going to fight anymore. There will be no more wars. He's going to rule and reign. That's at his second coming, and we're going to be ruling and reigning with him. Praise the Lord. But he's speaking now of he came with the message of peace, but many reject it. John tells us, John chapter 1, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. He came with the message of peace, but it was rejected. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Not of peace, he says, but a sword. Speaking of, not a physical sword, but a a line of demarcation, a division, a dividing thing. He didn't come to destroy families. That's not the, the point here. But many of us in this room can probably testify to the fact that when you confessed Jesus, when you made him Lord of your life, it caused division in your own family. Some people closest to you and maybe still to this day are very offended by that or even have pushed you away and kept you at arm's length or even cast you out of the family. You understand what Jesus is speaking of here. But he goes on to define it for us. Verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. We see this very clearly illustrated in a couple of Old Testament characters. Abraham and Eli. Abraham, the father of the, of the Jewish people, Backstory told back in early Genesis, Eli was a high priest. And we're studying actually that time on our, in our Wednesday night study. We've been going through that the last few Wednesday nights. Eli was the high priest. He had two sons who were wicked, wicked, wicked men. But they were priests in the tabernacle. They were the ones who were doing the sacrifices. They were the ones that the people would come. And Eli was the high priest, the old man, and he allowed them to continue in their sinful ways. They, would, they were literally stealing sacrifices that were to be offered to God and taking them for themselves. There was, there was sexual immorality taking place with these two sons and women that were coming to worship God in the tabernacle. And Eli because he didn't want to confront his sons with this. Eli, because he was more concerned about his son's reaction if he was to take a stand against them, didn't say anything. He let it go. And if when he did finally say something, it was just kind of like, hey guys, you probably ought to knock that off. He didn't take a stand. And God calls Eli out in 1 Samuel 2.29. He says, you honor your own sons above me. Now contrast that with Abraham. Abraham, the one that God promised a son to. He said, you will have a son and the descendants will come through that son. And that son was Isaac. And Isaac came to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. And after Isaac was grown up a little bit, God one day came to Abraham and said, I want you to take your son Isaac to Mount Moriah and I want you to offer him as a burnt sacrifice to me there. And Abraham, without question, without arguing, it says, got up early the next day and set out to do what God commanded him to do. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, it says this, 
By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Now there is so much in these couple of verses, but just a couple of things real quickly. It says that he offered up Isaac. He offered up Isaac. We know, reading through the story, that just before he was about ready to plunge the knife into his son, God stopped him. He had him tied up and on the altar, and he was about ready to go through with it, and God stopped him. And he said, Abraham, I now see that your heart is for me first. I now see that you love me supremely, and you will obey me. Untie your son. There's a ram caught in this, the bushes over here. Sacrifice that instead. But notice it said that Abraham offered up Isaac. He did it in his heart. He had determined in his heart that God is first. My love for God is first. I will obey him first. It says that he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. He said, I don't understand this. This doesn't make any sense. God said that through this son, I'm going to have grandkids and great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids. This doesn't make any sense, but he told me to do it, so I will be obedient. And it said that he considered that he's going to have to raise him from the dead, which is an amazing consideration, considering the fact that it had never happened before. At that time, before Abraham, nobody had ever been risen from the dead yet. <laughs> but he said, God's going to have to do something impossible and he stepped out in obedience. And it says too, he received him also as a type, receiving him back, a type. That means it's pointing forward to a future fulfillment, this being a shadow of something to come, of something to happen. And that thing to happen was again then God giving his only son as a sacrifice to us. And by the way, at the same place on Mount Moriah, Jesus died there for you and I. Romans chapter 8, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over to us all, how will he also not, also not with him freely give us all things? Demonstrating here this picture of love. Now I want to go back to what we're talking about here in Matthew and ask you, Eli and Abraham, these two men, these two fathers, which one of them loved their children more? Which one of them did the right thing for their sons? Yeah, but, you know, I, I, I want my kids to like me. I, I mean, I want to be their friend. I, I, you know, and, every, and guys, that's great. Dads especially, Father's Day. It's great to have your kids be friends, but you are their father first. You, we're, we're parents before we're friends, <laughs> Yeah, but I just want my kids to be happy. We all do. But do we want them to be temporarily happy or eternally happy? Do we want them to have a momentary enjoyment? Or do we want to teach them lessons that throughout the rest of their life will benefit them and they will find great joy in those? To me, there's no doubt Abraham 
loved Isaac and loved his sons more. He was willing to demonstrate trusting God and following in obedience, placing God first. Seeing God do the impossible. Living out Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, where it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Living out as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Demonstrating again that love for God comes first and you know what, that got passed down to his kids because Hebrews 11 goes on to say, by faith Isaac, by faith Jacob, by faith Joseph, it kept going. Passing it on. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Love, loving our children, the best way we can love our children is by loving God supremely. Verse 38, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. You know, when things are repeated, especially when Jesus repeats things, you ought to really, really pay attention. Flip over a couple of pages, just a couple of pages, chapter 16, Jesus repeats this. Chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But for, but for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Same message, same audience. He's speaking to his disciples again. There's eternal ramifications to the message that he gives to them to be taken out. Forfeiting your soul. He says, he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Guys, taking up our cross doesn't mean wearing a cross necklace. Taking up our cross does not mean putting a bumper sticker on your car or wearing one of those not-of-this-world t-shirts with a cross this big on it, that's not, that's not taking up your cross. Taking up your cross and following Jesus means, again, that we confess Christ with our lips and with our lives, that we obey him in spite of rejection, in spite of persecution, in spite of even suffering that might come our way. That is taking up our cross. Never forget, never forget, and it's easy to in our culture, never forget that the cross was an instrument of torturous death. It wasn't some cool, fancy thing that you hang on your wall. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but we forget because we, we'd make them look like this at times, that the cross was an instrument to torture people to death on. So when we are called to carry our own cross and follow Jesus, that is an instrument that we are to die on. 
die to ourselves. And by the way, when somebody picked up a cross to carry it, to be ex- it's a one-way ticket. You're not coming back. And that's what we're called to do. Jesus said, if you're not willing to do that, you're not worthy of me. He carried his cross. He carried and died on his cross for us. The least we can do is to pick up ours and follow him. There are many masters in the world. Money, fame, pleasure, drugs. Many, many masters. And they're all cruel masters. We can can look at, if there's one redeeming quality in the tabloids, is that when every time you check out, you can see how miserable all these people are that chase after fame and fortune and, and, and popularity and, and all of this kind of stuff, and not one of them is happy. Not one of them is satisfied. They're all miserable. They, they, everybody who chases after these things goes through all of these crises in their life, and they're crying out, I'm losing it. And Jesus says, great. That's what needs to happen. If you want to find life, lose all of that. Put it all down. Paul, when he wrote the letter to the Philippians, he had it figured out. He finally reached a point in his life where he had it all. He had the whole thing figured out and he said, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Six words summed up his whole attitude and his whole outlook. To me, to live is Christ. The world looks at religion and says that it's impersonal, it's impractical, it's impossible. And they're right. Religion is just that. It's extremely impersonal. It's totally impractical. And it's completely impossible. But Paul isn't talking about religion. He's talking about a personal relationship with Jesus. And that is the complete opposite. To me, he said, to me. It doesn't get any more personal than a relationship with Jesus. There is no relationship more personal than your relationship with Jesus. To me, he says, and we all need to own that, to me personally, because when Jesus went to the cross, he suffered and died there for every individual sin that you've ever committed. Every thought, yes, every thought that you've ever had, every word, Every action that goes contrary to God, he took it personally to the cross for you. You don't get any more personal than that. To me, he said, to me, to live. When we fully embrace this, there's no more relationship that's any more practical than this. Where where every moment is spent with Jesus. Every concern is shared with Jesus. Every thought is surrendered to Jesus. Every decision is submitted to Jesus. That's practical, real life stuff. And then he said, to me, to live is Christ. Because when we think of this living for him in that way, we say, well, that's impossible. And on our own, it is. 
It is impossible. All of this that we're talking about is impossible, but all of this that we're talking about is him possible. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But Paul said later in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This relationship, this relationship that Jesus is calling us to, to take up our cross and to follow him in, is so personal, so practical, and yes, so possible, available to all of us. And he said, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We can't get to the point where dying is gaining until we get this other part figured out, until we get it to where Paul was. Because until we do, our life is to live as wealth and possessions. Well, if that's the case, then to die is to leave it all behind. If to live is fame, then to die is to be forgotten. If to live is power, then to die is to lose it all. But if to live is Christ then to die is gain. Now, don't misunderstand me. He's not calling us to this, a life of doom and gloom and, man, I just can't wait till I die. That's, that's not it. No, as a matter of fact, it's the exact opposite. He is calling us to a life of joy and satisfaction. Joy unspeakable. Joy that, that we can't possibly experience outside of this relationship. Jesus said, I come that that you might have life and have it abundantly. Abundantly, meaning over and beyond, above, overflowing, beyond what you could possibly ask or think. That is his heart towards us. That is what he desires for us. And guys, he wants us to find it. That's why he words it in such a way. He desires us to get to that point where we get it, where we fully embrace it. Isaiah, prophet Isaiah 55, verse two, he says, why do you spend your money on what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. That's what this life offers. That's what this life offers here. And then to die is still gain because again, we go then to be with our Lord forever in heaven. Well, he wraps up our discipleship training in verse 40, speaking of those who we minister to who receive what we we have to say. He says, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. We can be a blessing to others. When we walk in obedience in this discipleship role that we've been called in and we go out to make disciples, we are a blessing to others. God uses us in his ministry in the world. Paul said to the church in Corinth that we are co-laborers, co-workers with God. 
He talks often through this section, as we've seen, that, that it will cause division. There will be many who reject our message, but not everyone will reject it. Some will receive it, some will welcome it, and he speaks then of the blessing that they will receive when they receive the message and they embrace the message. And guys, I gotta tell you, when we, are, when we let God use us in that way, there's no greater blessing for us. When we are obedient and we share the gospel and that seed is planted and the Holy Spirit does that work and that person receives Christ, there is no greater blessing than to be used by God for that. And if you haven't, if you are reluctant to share your faith and to be bold about your faith because you're worried about what others might think, realize the blessing that is in it for them, if you will. Just like we saw in that video a couple of weeks ago, how much do you have to hate somebody not to tell them the truth? So tell them, and then when we do, again, God just keeps the blessing train coming because then we're blessed when they get blessed. We are his ambassadors. We're his ambassadors. We have his message. And when, when people receive that message, they receive him. Well, to tie it up real quick, chapter 10, again, the theme is discipleship. The theme is following closely after Jesus. We, we become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, but discipleship involves surrendering it all, following him completely. Guys, there's a great need today for faithful disciples. Again, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. So let's pray. Pray that God would raise up workers and then be ready to be put to work. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word.